they're like, I'd no like numbers. to interview. But yeah, I mean, so if you want to interview Bill Murray, he has this 1-800 number. And if you can get the 1-800 number, there isn't like an outgoing message, just a beep. And you, you say like, uh, okay, hi, um, I'm Chris Nashawati from Entertainment Weekly. I'm writing a book about Caddyshack. I'd really like to talk to you. <laughs> and he may call you back. He may not call you back. Yeah, you have no idea. You if... have no idea. It's like casting like a prayer into the void. <laughs> it could be in a day. It could be in a year. You don't know. 9.30 one night, I happened to be still in the office, and the phone lit up, and it was a South Carolina prefix, and I was like, it's got to be him. So I pick it up, and it's Bill Murray, and he's he's just like, uh, what do you want to know? <laughs> I was like, thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I am your host, Sean Zock. Recently, we've been pumping out Masters-related podcasts, and it's all been super serious because that is the Masters and that is Augusta National. But thankfully, we're now in the Masters hangover period. We can kind of lighten the mood a little bit, and I think for the podcast, we have the perfect guest for that. Here in studio today is Chris Nashawati, author of the forthcoming book, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. The book is out this month. You can find it wherever people buy books. Chris, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Now, you had a long commute down a couple flights of stairs here at the office in, in lower Manhattan. Uh, but for those listening, you're a film critic at Entertainment Weekly, which I think is one floor above, two floors above? One floor above, mm -hmm. yep. And in order for you to write a book on the making of Caddyshack, you can't just be an entertainment fan. You have to be a golf nut, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty terrible player. Uh, I wouldn't say that my swing is as bad as Rodney Dangerfield's in the film, yeah. but it's it's not great either. Uh, I do, but I do love the sport. I was pretty glued to the Masters, um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it helps definitely to uh, have an appreciation for the sport. Totally. Now, I think anyone that can appreciate the movie is also a golf fan, but it's so much more than a golf movie. It really is. It's it's probably first and foremost a comedy in your eyes, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it just it it's uh you know your classic snobs versus slobs comedy, uh, and it just happens to be set at a country club, um, and it taps into a lot of the sort of things we think about um, about golf more so in 1980 than now in 1980 when the movie was made. Golf was very much considered a, a very conservative, you know, white sport yeah. uh, with a lot of, you know, like really stuffy people playing it um, at country clubs. Now it's obviously become a little bit more democratic. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. So um, but at the time it was really that was uh, a world that was just sort of ripe for satire. Oh, totally. Now, uh, where does the idea come from? Like when you grew up, you watched Caddyshack you probably adored it at the time, but in order to get to where you are now in, in 2018 with a book on it, where does the idea for this book come from? Um, a couple couple different places. The first is, you know, I'm a film critic. That's my day job, right? Yeah. And and so when you tell people that you're a film critic, they think that you, you know, your favorite movies are like Hitchcock and Fellini and <laughs> like, you know, just really highbrow movies. Um, but, you know, growing up in the 80s, my the movies I really and by the way I love all of those sort of you yeah. know art art house movies but growing up in the eighties uh, you know Caddyshack Stripes Animal House those are the movies that that I was really sort of you know raised on and those are the movies that I fell in love with um, and part of the reason that I now write about movies so uh, so yes I had a, a total love of Caddyshack from you know the time I was eleven years old um, but also you know it's 
to me, it's it's um, it's one of these movies that the more you dig into it and sort of find out about how it was made, yeah, the making of story is a million times funnier and more interesting than the movie itself. I, I and I love the movie, but the making of story is insane. When did you realize that? Um, I was doing. Uh, I originally started writing about Caddyshack for uh, an oral history I did for Sports Illustrated several years ago. Um, and as I was doing the reporting for that, I was interviewing the people who were the stars of the movie, like Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, and uh, the director Harold Ramis, who's now passed on. But um, as I was talking to them, you know, they were telling me these stories about making the movie in Florida in 1979. And at the time, Florida was like the gateway into America for cocaine. Yep. And, you know, the world was a different place in 1979. And the set and the making of the movie was just all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And um, they they really, you know, a lot of the people who were making the movie and uh, starring the movie, it was their first film. Yeah. So they didn't know what they were doing. So it's really um, just a, a story about like the the inmates running the asylum, and uh, it's it's just crazy. It's just the more you dig into it, the crazier it becomes. Yeah, I feel like that's probably why you felt there, or you convinced yourself that there's an audience for it because people love sex, reading about sex, writing about it, rock and roll, drugs. Like that is exactly one of the the biggest marketing schemes, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely got a lot of juicy anecdotes in there. Um, so where do you start, like? As far as reporting goes, like, yeah. is it interview after interview after interview? How many interviews, how many hours of interviews are you talking about? Oh, God, I think I interviewed probably about 60 people for the book. Um, you know, obviously the stars, but, you know, the people yeah. who worked at the studio. And the book is is more than just the making of Caddyshack. It sort of traces a decade of, of comedy, right? So you're starting with, um, in the early 70s, you know, the, the founding of the National Lampoon, mm -hmm. okay? And that goes into Saturday Night Live, the birth of Saturday Night Live. And also in Chicago, there's this, you know, Second City, the yeah. improv group. And all of those three things sort of come together on this movie. So you're interviewing people from all of those different worlds, it's sort of telling the story about where comedy was before Caddyshack and how it sort of revolutionized comedy in, in, in Hollywood. Did you realize that right away? Or when does this stuff become relevant for you when you're trying to, to pick apart the gigantic comedy that it, it became? Um, it's it's really just you sort of you enter. I started interviewing the, 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 the movie stars. Right. Mm -hmm. And and as I did, um, they would bring up a story or an anecdote and I'd say, Okay, well, you know, Bill Murray, as he's telling me this story, he just mentioned three people who I don't know who they are. Yeah. So now I got to find those three people and get the story from their tough? point of view. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, actually, the hardest thing is getting Bill Murray to do an interview. Yeah. I mean, to me, that was that was like the white whale of the whole book, because Bill Murray traditionally doesn't do any interviews at all. Really? I mean, he's a really hard guy to pin down. Unlike most Hollywood stars who I've interviewed, you know, for 25 years at Entertainment Weekly working there. He doesn't have uh, a publicist who you can just call up yeah. and say, like, There's I'd no like number. to interview. But yeah, I mean, so if you want to interview Bill Murray, he has this 1-800 number. What? Okay. Yeah, no, it's, it, um, this, is not, this is not a joke. He has a 1-800 number. And if you can get the 1-800 number, I had to, like, you <laughs> know, really dig hard to get the number. But you call the number. And you make a request to Bill Murray on this number. And there isn't, there isn't like an outgoing message, just a beep. And you, you say like, uh, okay, hi, um, I'm Chris Nashawati from Entertainment Weekly. I'm writing a book about Caddyshack. I'd really like to talk to you. And then you just, here's my number. <laughs> and he may call you back. He may not call you back. 
Yeah, you have no idea. You if... have no idea. It's like casting like a prayer into the void. <laughs> and if he does call you back, it could be in a day. It could be in a year. You don't know. And this is like the same. He uses the same policy. Like if you want to get him in your movie, if you're a director and you want to like cast Bill Murray in your movie. Yeah. You have to do the. You have to go through the same, jump through the same hoops. So how long did it take for him to get back to you? Um, it took about three months. Oh, wow. And it was only because um, I have a friend who's like sort of friendly with him. And I had the friend also call the 1-800 number and say like, hey, you can trust this guy. And eventually he did call. He called me at 930 one night. I happened to be still in the office and the phone lit up and it was a South Carolina prefix. And I was like, it's got to be him. Right. (laughs) Because I knew he had a house there. So I pick it up and it's Bill Murray. And he's he's just like, "Uh, what do you want to know? I was like, thank God I'm here. Because if I didn't pick this up, I never would have got him. Totally. Um, and he, once you do get him, he's fully there. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's like really engaged. He gave me a lot of time. He was really introspective. Couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been funnier. Um, but yeah, to me, that was that was like the real coup of the whole thing. What was the best maybe bit from Bill Murray that he was able to give you about his involvement with the movie? Well, I mean, and this will be really interesting to to your audience, I think, is that Bill Murray, you know, he grew up just north of Chicago and the Murray family is nine kids. And, you know, they were pretty working class in a pretty nice town. Mm -hmm. And so to go to Jesuit school in high school, he and all of his brothers would caddy at the local golf clubs. And, uh, you know, from the time they were like, 10 so he started off like as a shag boy you know like at the driving range just like you know darting around picking up golf balls getting hit with you know it's dangerous uh, yeah it's really dangerous work and he was talking about that but he talks about it with like a real sort of romance you know what i mean like he really appreciated the work ethic that that instilled in him and and you know as he got a little bit older he became a caddy and i think he really sort of saw that as the greatest summers of his life yeah so um it appeals to me. Yeah, I mean it's and I think you know it's 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 something that a lot of people can relate to, you know. And um yeah, so the thing that really surprised me most about him is just how what a regular guy he was and just how far back his connection to the game goes. Yeah. And so it, it is far back his connection to the game. Not everyone on this movie, the cast and crew has a connection to golf. I, no. <laughs> I, no. I think that that is perfect though. I don't I don't know if you agree with me, but just enough golfiness to the cast and crew, but not so much that it becomes a golf movie. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And um, I think that's because uh, the the script, one of the writers of the script, there are three people who wrote the script, but one of them was Bill's older brother, Brian Doyle Murray, who, uh, for him, this was like a very personal tale. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the movie obviously is about Danny Noonan, who's like this working class Irish Catholic kid, um, who's very much like one of the Murrays. And he's sort of, you know, got his nose pressed against the glass of this really rarefied atmosphere of a country club. And that's sort of like how the Murrays grew up. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? They were, they were, they were, I don't want to say poor, but they definitely were surrounded by people who were richer than them. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, the story is primarily a comedy. It's got like, you know, baby Ruth duty gags and, and topless women and at Rodney Dangerfield doing his jokes throughout the whole thing. But it's it's also got it's you can tell it's written by someone who understands the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it appeals to golf people, but it's crazy enough also that 
even if you don't know anything about golf, you get it. It's still funny. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's a great excerpt that obviously you can find in the book, but you will eventually find it online at golf.com. And you alluded to it earlier. It deals with cocaine and just how riddled this set was with drugs and cocaine. And to me, that is shocking. Um, yeah. But was that a sign of the times? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, like, this would never happen today. I mean, movies are just, A, too expensive, and B, there's just too much oversight mm -hmm. by, you know, studios who have a big investment in these movies that they're not going to let stuff like that happen. Um, but at the time, in 1979 in Hollywood, cocaine was pretty prevalent. And um, like I said before, you know, they were shooting the movie in Florida, which was just like coke was plentiful and cheap. And, you know, not that these people like first discovered the drug when they got yeah. to Florida. I mean, they had, you know, they weren't rookies with cocaine use <laughs> by the time they got there. And it's not all of them. I mean, Bill Murray was not a cocaine user. OK, but um, but it was sort of the fuel that kept the, the whole wild. movie running. You know what I mean? And um, they shot the movie pretty quickly and pretty inexpensively. Um, but when they when the cameras weren't rolling they weren't in their rooms practicing their lines they mm -hmm. well they were but not not dialogue lines they were doing different kinds of lines you know and it's it's a really a decadent <laughs> it was a really decadent movie shoot and it just wouldn't happen today now is that the kind of thing that you said it, it kept it going, but is it was there concern that it would also derail the process? Well, the studio, when they found out, they got rumors back, the studio back in California, when they had heard just how sort of like Caligulan the whole atmosphere was in Florida, they got really concerned. Yeah. You know, that's not something you want to <laughs> be in business with is a bunch of young people taking drugs on your movie set. You become liable very quickly. Um, so they, they sort of, you know, rushed out to the set and said, you know, Hey, you guys, you can't be doing this. Um, but by then it was too late. The movie was pretty much done. Uh, but the, the, one of the guys who wrote the, the movie, this guy, Doug Kenny, who's like really the sort of the, one of the main characters of this book, because he, um, he worked for the Harvard Lampoon and then he started the National Lampoon and then he wrote, uh, Animal House. And so Animal House at the time was like the biggest Hollywood comedy of all time. Mm -hmm. It made $140 million that cost like two to make. Um, and so when that movie came out, everyone wanted this guy's next movie. Mm. So he teamed up with Harold Ramis and um, Brian Doyle Murray to write the script. And, and Doug Kenny, it turns out, was a pretty heavy cocaine user. And he was also the producer of Caddyshack. So he sort of set the tone on the whole set ah. that this was like a good times mm -hmm. sort of production. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's when you look at all of the drug consumption on this movie, it's not just drugs, it's alcohol and it's just partying in general. Um, it's shocking that a movie got made at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds like cocaine was something that they were happy to discuss with you though, too, as well. I think enough time has gone by <laughs> yeah. that, that, um, that people are pretty free and easy with, with the anecdotes. Mm -hmm. Um, which is great for me uh, because they're telling you all these great cocaine stories. But, um, you know, if it, if it was something that happened yesterday, they probably wouldn't be as no. free and easy with the stories. And another chapter in, in the book uh, details the gopher, which is in very important. It's still a minor character in the movie, uh, but it's an important character. Uh, it, it defines definitely part of the Finnish 
uh, of the movie and the most climactic part of it. The Gopher has a pretty interesting casting story, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Gopher was was almost not a part of the movie at all. Like they had a script for this movie, and it was good. It wasn't great. But Harold Ramis had sort of come out of the world of Second City, which is an improv group. Mm -hmm. And he believed in improv. So as soon as they got to the set, yes, they had a script, but they sort of decided to make it up as they went along. Like Bill Murray, for example, doesn't have any lines in the entire script. It just says, Bill riffs here. <laughs> you know, they would just say, Bill, here's the premise. Just do you do something. Yeah. And, he'd, you know, he'd come up with like Cinderella story in yeah. one take. You know what I mean? Like it's it's nuts to even think about. But because they were sort of just making it up as they go along, the movie was totally different from the script. And by the time they were done with it and they got to the editing room and they cut it all together, it didn't make any sense at all. There was nothing tying it all together. It was just a bunch of gags that had like no thread yeah. that connects them. And so, you know, there were sort of we have a disaster here. And the one thing that one of the producers came up with to sort of save the picture was like, you know this gopher that's in one scene? Why don't we go back and shoot a lot more gopher stuff and make him sort of the thread that connects all of these scenes? Yeah, that's tricky. So the gopher was just a total afterthought, but it ended up being the thing that saved the film. Um, and there's actually a, a quite a... Uh, they were thinking about actually hiring a real gopher. Yeah, I mean, when they first thought that, you know, we need to get more gopher stuff in this movie... Um, Maybe they were just all so high, but they, yeah. they thought that, you know, oh, well, we can just get a gopher or like a, you know, like a guinea pig or something and we can just train it. And, you know, um, not that simple. No, it really didn't work out that way. So when they realized they could not do that, um, they had to build an animatronic gopher. Uh, and they, they got the guy who had worked on Star Wars to, to ah. build an animatronic gopher. And um, and they went back and they spent uh, half a million dollars filming these extra scenes of the gopher. They were kind of they were squeezing a little bit of pennies out of the, the remaining budget, right? Yeah, actually, they, they had they had gone through the budget. And when they needed more gopher stuff, um, <laughs> they, they showed what they had to the head of the studio. And they said, we need more money because this is like we need something the gopher to like tie it all together. He's like, well, let me see what you got. And he watched the cut of the movie and he was like, uh, yeah, you guys have a disaster. So I will cut you a check for $500,000 to shoot more gopher stuff. And hopefully that'll save this thing because it's a mess. A, a check for 500 grand to shoot more go like that shoot is a more sentence. gopher stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, crazy. it's Hollywood in the 70s, pretty much in a nutshell. <laughs> Uh, so between the cocaine riddled set, the gopher and that casting process, what is one more thing that, that people who want to read the book would that like surprised you? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that surprised me. But one in particular is is Ronnie Dangerfield, who to me sort of steals the movie mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, he was obviously a stand up comic. Um, he was not an actor. He did not know anything about acting. And so he was really insecure. I think a lot of stand-up comics are in general. But so he was shooting his scenes on the first day and no one was laughing. <sighs> but you can't laugh on a movie set because it'll ruin ruin the take, you know? You don't want to hear the, you know, the the crew okay. laughing. So he, because no one was laughing, he thought he was bombing. And they had to like reassure him constantly like Rodney, no, it's fine. They just can't laugh. So him being so insecure to me was fascinating, but even more so was this this sort of hatred that um, Ted Knight had for him. Because 
they were all improvising and making it up as they were going along. Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, yeah. Ronnie Dangerfield. It was just like free for all because they're all trained comedians. Um, but Ted Knight was he was not. He was just a, you know, like a really professionally trained actor who had worked on their Mary Tyler Moore show. And to him, you have a script and you say the words that are on the script. And that's that. So he's in a scene with Rodney and uh, like the, the famous one in the pro shop. Uh, you know, when he goes like, you know, you buy a hat like this, you get oh, yeah. a free bowl of soup, that whole thing. So um, Rodney's just like riffing and coming up with stuff. And Ted Knight's just like looking like totally pissed off and he's like what are you doing and those two really did not get along because their working styles were so different and what's interesting about that is that ted knight is like just like in a rage the whole movie right but that's his character yeah it probably helped but it totally helped his character how how just like he thought everyone was just young and stoned on the set and Rodney was just like irresponsible. So like when he's playing Judge Smales and he's getting mad at everyone, it's yeah. like that's Ted Knight really getting mad. Really actually yeah. being pissed off. Absolutely. Now, the movie itself wasn't like first weekend just gigantic success. Yeah. Um, $6 million budget is not not huge. No. Eventually it, it grosses some good money. Um, but- why do you think it didn't resonate? Did it resonate? Did it turn the corner at a certain point? Um, well, I, I, here's the thing. When the movie came out, I mean, let's be honest about what Caddyshack is, okay? Yeah. I mean, Caddyshack is a pretty messy movie that when you are not an 18-year-old watching it, if you were like a professional movie critic watching it, you would say this movie's sort of a mess. Mm-hmm. It does, it's, you know, it's funny, but it's... It's it's sloppy and it's just sort of it's not a well-made movie. And so the critics really dogpiled on this thing when it came out. Yeah. The reviews were scathing. Roger, I have some Roger Ebert that, was not a big fan. No, he was definitely not a big fan and like, you know, I think it was the the critic for the Hollywood Reporter was like trying to evaluate Caddyshack is like trying to evaluate the aesthetics of an of an outhouse. You know, <laughs> I mean like the reviews were like really brutal. Um and so it took a while for this movie to find its audience. And it ended up making $40 million. Like you said, it, it cost six. So $40 million is pretty good. Um, but it wasn't Animal House kind of money, which is what the studio was expecting or what they were at least hoping for. And I think it's really o- only over time, you know, with VHS. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how old you are, but like I had a copy of Caddyshack on VHS. And you would just watch that thing over and over again until like the tape was like yeah. you could see through it it was just like you 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 played it into the ground and i think the more people watched it um over time it became like a real cult favorite mm-hmm. a real cult movie that people loved and um you know now you can be at a party or at a golf course mm-hmm. and someone will say you know they'll quote a line from caddyshack and like you immediately know that you're a kindred spirit with that person. Totally. You know what I mean? If someone like starts doing the Dalai Lama speech or something, it's like, all right, I know I can hang with you. That's so true. You know, it's just like it's become like this real sort of common knowledge among a certain set of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it took a while for it to find its audience. But when it found it, it really found it. It is interesting that when you look at sports movies, 
you know, there's a, a long list of the greatest sports movies, and they're all so serious yeah. and rocky, and uh, I don't know, Raging of, Bull, or Hoosiers. Hoosiers, yeah, exactly. Right. And uh, this is not a serious movie. Tin Cup is probably the best serious golf movie, maybe. Right. Uh, do you think it, that is because golf itself is a very easily mockable? Yeah, sport? I do, and I think it was a lot more easily mocked you know, in 1980 than it is now. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't I don't know that, like, the same stereotypes that are in this movie really hold up today as they did back then. They do, but not to the same degree. Um, and there are some good sports comedies. I mean, like Slapshot or Bull Durham or something. But, yeah, I mean, like, this, this is... It really takes the air out of a very snooty sport or what was a really snooty sport. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that if you play golf... Uh, you recognize a lot of the characters and stereotypes in this movie. And if you don't play golf, you this is what you think, you know, the people who like. golf at country clubs are like, you yeah. know, you think they're Ted Knight. Is is there a reason why we haven't seen another? Well, maybe maybe we have. Do you feel like any of the other golf movies have risen up to maybe the, the outer banks of what Caddyshack stands in the golf space for? I don't think anything's quite on that level. I, yeah. d I do think Tin Cup is, is a really great movie, and it's got certainly got a good audience, and it, it probably gets into the psychology of like golfing be mm -hmm. much better than a movie like Caddyshack does. I think Caddyshack is sort of, it, it can be appreciated by more than just golfers. Yeah. Um, but... I, don't, I mean, I'm certainly not like an, the Adam Sandler golf movie, or that's I, what you're going to call Happy Gilmore. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Happy Gilmore. Um, I, Bagger Vance is like watching paint dry. I mean, yeah. like the, the golf is not particularly well served yeah. in the movies. Is it? Is it? Is that because shooting golf is difficult? You think that that aspect of this? I think it's really hard to to shoot golf in the sense that there are probably not a lot of actors who look convincing. Yeah you know, from the T, um, you know, I think that in this movie, it is pretty much a collection of terrible golf swings other than Bill Murray. Um, you know, Chevy Chase isn't much of a golfer. Uh, Roddy Dangerfield swing is like just, I don't know. It's not even golf what he's doing. Um, you know, and some of the other characters, Michael O'Keefe who plays Danny Noonan has a nice golf swing. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's because he played at winged foot every day for three months before the movie started. Uh, just to like, get, yeah, to get a decent, he grew up near there okay. and, um, his dad knew the pro there. And so he just like got into golf shape basically for three months before the movie. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's really hard for actors to, to, to fake that, you know, Kevin Costner has a great swing in Tin Cup, yeah. but he's, he's a really good athlete, yeah. you know, just in general. So um, I, I don't know why they don't make more golf movies. Um, it's possible that they think that the golf audience is, is mm. too small to, to really be this, you know, big commercial crowd pleaser uh, audience. Uh, but I don't think that's true. I mean, I think the golf audience is huge. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, if you made a good golf comedy right now or even a go good golf drama, it would do really well. Yeah. You got to make it good. You got to make it good. I think that's the, the, the takeaway from our conversation is that there was the right amount of comedy, great comedy, great comics being brought in for this, just enough golf stuff to make it great for a wider audience but i think we can leave it at that for now chris 
Where can people find and buy and when can they get this book? Yeah, it comes out on April 24th and you can pick it up uh, through Amazon or Barnes & Nobles or any you know, local independent booksellers. So uh, wherever books are bought and sold, that is Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. Thanks again to Chris. Thank you to you as well for listening to the Golf.com podcast. Check out the excerpt on Golf.com and check out the book if you are a Caddyshack fan which I'm guessing you definitely are if you are still listening to our podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.